Good morning. Can we thank Pat for his leadership of our youth ministry? Thank you, Pat. So grateful for what God does through that ministry. All right, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15, we're looking today at another one of our Lord's miracles, actually several of them. Really, what stands out in this passage, though, what's featured here for us is uh, the faith of the mother that we encounter. Uh, We find an anxious mother, we find a suffering mother, but she is a mother who exercises tremendous faith. And so I've entitled this message, The Trial and Triumph of Faith. The trial and triumph of faith. I want to jump right into our passage today. So Matthew chapter 15, we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 31, although we'll mostly focus on 21 through 28. I invite you to follow along now as I read. This is what Holy Scripture says. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away. For she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed Instantly, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them down at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking. The crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seen, and they glorified the God of Israel. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Now, the thing I want to uh, draw your attention to, right off from the, beg- from the beginning here, is in verse 29, the phrase, great is your faith. If you underline in your Bible, you might want to underline that. It's 
It's not often that someone's faith is called great in Scripture, and it's certainly not an attribute Jesus gives liberally. So we should note it. This is not little faith like the disciples who we've just seen after they saw Jesus feed the the 5,000 and walked on water. It's not the no faith of the Pharisees and the scribes who we've also just been studying. Uh, This is in great contrast to them. Here is a woman of great faith. In the Greek, it's megapistis. This is, this is mega faith. This is huge faith. This is large faith. And this is not the first time our Lord has highlighted someone's great faith. Back in chapter 8, the Roman centurion came to Jesus, wanted him to perform a miracle for his servant who was paralyzed. And Jesus said to him, uh, chapter 8, verse 10, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Greek implies such large faith, so much faith. And these are the only two times in Matthew's gospel where Jesus describes to someone great faith. Interestingly, both of them are Gentiles. Neither of them are Jews. And this really leads us into the first point that we want to make here today. The first thing we want to see in this woman's faith is, number one, faith that surprises. Faith that surprises. What I mean by this is that faith is sometimes found where it's least expected. Faith is sometimes found where it's least expected. Sometimes it surprises us. So look again with me at verse 21 here. We're told that Jesus went away from there, that is from Galilee, where he's been ministering for some time, and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. So this was a a deliberate withdrawal by Jesus. It was a a tactical retreat. Uh, What he's doing is he's, he's trying to get away so that he can spend some time with his disciples. Now, we're about 15 chapters, or we are 15 chapters into Matthew, but we're only about a year out from the cross And so knowing that this is approaching, Jesus is wanting time away with his disciples to prepare them. So he goes to this remote area. He goes into Gentile territory, the one place where he knows crowds are not going to follow him. The people are not going to follow him so that he can be away with the disciples. He didn't go there to minister. He went to be away with them. But then we see in verse 22, and when you're studying your Bible, you've got to pay attention to these things. Matthew includes this. He says, and behold... So, you know, as Bible studiers, it's like, he's literally saying, look at this. You know, pay attention here. You got to see what's coming. This is a big deal. Well, what's the big deal, Matthew? Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now, we may be drawn to the affliction of her daughter right away, but Matthew wants us to note that she is a Canaanite woman. These are the kind of details you got to pay attention to when you're studying her Bible. Why does he designate that? She's already a Gentile. We've established that from that district, but she's a Canaanite woman. Well, the Canaanites were ancient enemies of the Jews. So from a Jewish perspective, she's like the worst of the worst. So this should not be a woman approaching the Jewish Messiah. This is not a woman that have any interest in Jesus at all. And yet here she is crying unto him with a 
a Jewish messianic title, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. And I just want to highlight here, what I think Matthew is highlighting here, is that this is a faith that surprises. It's unexpected. This comes from a place least expected. And that should be a great encouragement to all of us. That should be a great encouragement to all of us because here's a number of ways we could apply this. Uh, among young people here, young adults, I, I hear more and more talk of people interested in uh, world missions and going overseas as missionaries, which is fantastic. I only want to see more of that here. I love hearing young people talk about that. Now, I haven't yet, but if any of you old people want to talk about that, you can talk about that too. I'd love to see you go. We want to see people go overseas and take the gospel. And if I could, I would just take you, and as I have done before, I would do it again. I would aim you at unreached peoples. If I had you know, the ability to aim you overseas, I'd say, okay, just aim yourself at unreached people. Unreached people like the Yadava people in India who are one of the least reached people, 41 million people who have no access to knowledge of Jesus Christ. Or the Sheikh people in Bangladesh, 134 million people. It's not that they've rejected Jesus. It's not that they, they know that there are Jesus worshipers out there, but that's just not really what they are into. It's not, oh, I've heard about them. I you know, don't really care about them, don't know much about them. These are people who have no access to any knowledge of Jesus. Well, Google them. They don't even know to look for, I mean, they don't know to look for who Jesus is. There is no way for them to know about him unless we go to them. And share with them the good news. And so I, I would point you that way and, and, and point it that way. You may look back and say, but yeah, but pastor, what hope do I have going into that dark land? To that dark territory. And I would point to this passage and say, well, it is possible to dwell even in Tyre and Sidon and yet be drawn to the light of the Savior. Faith is sometimes found where it is least expected. That is true overseas, that is true in your workplace, that is true in your neighborhood. Faith surprises. Or parents, you have labored to give your kids the gospel. You have sought to bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. You have sought to train them in the way that they should go, and yet still they are not saved. Maybe many years it has been, and they do not believe and they have left home, and like the theme from youth camp, the prodigal, you, you, you are the father in that story, scanning the horizon, longing for their return, praying for their return. Your heart is tender, but your, your hope is faint. It's just been so long. The ground in their heart seems so hard. They're living a life of rebellion against God. Friend, let this passage stir your faith. It is possible to be an enemy of God like this Canaanite woman and yet be led, be drawn by His grace to somehow cry out with great faith, Have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David. We should never give up hope because God can draw surprising faith. Friends, there is a faith that surprises, showing up where we least expected it because the harvest is plentiful. Therefore, we must pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. 
All right, point number two then this morning. Point number two, faith that perseveres. Faith that perseveres. It's a faith that surprises and faith that perseveres. The second thing we note here is this woman's faith. It's a tenacious, I mean, she just does not give up. She has great faith and great faith perseveres. And you can't help but marvel at this woman's endurance. So, first in verse 22, we read that she was crying out. She's crying out. The Greek implies that that she's doing this continually. So the streets are just ringing with her cries. Uh, Lord, have mercy. Lord, oh, son of David, have mercy. Lord, Lord, my daughter, have mercy. Oh, God, my daughter, Lord, have mercy. The streets are ringing with her crying out for help. But then contrast that with verse 23. But he, Jesus, but he did not answer her a word. I mean, do you see the stark contrast that that Matthew's setting up there? We have this, this poor mom crying out. The streets are ringing with her noise. She's crying aloud, and Jesus is not answering a word. A crying sinner and a silent Savior. And let's just park the car there for a moment, because... Christian who has walked with the Lord for any about of time, have you not experienced similar seasons? You're crying aloud. You're crying out in anguish. And God seems silent. Some of you may be experiencing that here today. It's... This is a picture of you. (laughs) Not to draw attention, but we've all been there. We're a family church. We know. We do. We cry out much like that child, and we do not understand what our Father is doing. He seems silent. Samuel Rutherford, a Scottish divine, once wrote, The silence of God is the bitterest ingredient to drink in the cup of sorrow. The silence of God is the bitterest ingredient to drink in the cup of sorrow. Uh, Boys and girls, uh, I want to help you understand this if I can. So you're scattered all over the room, so I'm I'm speaking to the little ones here. This is a, a, a trial in the Christian life that I would like to help you understand a little bit. So imagine, kids, that you got into a fight with one of your siblings. You would never get into a fight with your sibling, right? Kids, I know you would never fight with your siblings, but just imagine that you did. Or imagine that your sibling broke something or that someone got hurt. And what do you do? You run to mom and she's doing the dishes. You say, mom, 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 you know, this happened and so-and-so got hurt and, or, or this got broke or, or they, they just punched me and mom, mom. And imagine your mom just standing there and she's like, just doing the dishes. Doesn't answer a word. And you're like, what, mom? Do you hear me? You start pulling on her shirt, right? Like, mom, do you hear me? Mom, mom, they did this, they did this, this, mom, mom, mom. But mom's not answering. And you know something's not right. You know your mom loves you. You know she cares about you. You know she cares about these things. But why isn't she answering? Something feels off. Something feels 
wrong. And, and that's how we can feel with God sometimes. We're going to Him, we're crying out to Him, we're trying to point out something that's not right, but it feels like He's just not answering. Now in reality, God is, we know from Scripture, God is never absent or silent. Um, listen, only Jesus, only Jesus suffered the silence of God. On the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not an answer. Only Jesus suffered the real silence of God, and he did that for our sin, not for any of his own sins. He did that so that we would never have to suffer the silence of God, the rejection of God. So only Jesus has suffered the silence of God. God only seems silent to us now. You could put it this way. Jesus suffered the real silence of God. What we suffer is a shadow of that, a shadow of the real thing. But in reality, God is always speaking through creation, through his people, through his word. And so this is the test of faith. Uh, It's to trust his promises more than our perception. It's to trust his promises more than our perception. The silence of God, it's a hard trial, but God uses it to grow our faith. That's what he was doing with this woman, I believe. He was growing and purifying her faith. Spurgeon explains this very well when he writes... Faith untried may be true faith, but it is sure to be little faith, and it is likely to remain dwarfish so long as it is without trials. Faith never prospers so well as when all things are against her. Tempest are her trainers, and lightnings are her illuminators. When a calm reigns on the sea, spread the sails as you will, The ship moves not to its harbor, for on a slumbering ocean the keel sleeps too. Let the winds rush howling forth, and let the waters lift up themselves then, though the vessel may rock, and her deck may be washed with waves, and her mast may creak under the pressure of the full and swelling sail. It is then that she makes headway toward her desired haven. Friends, it's perseverance through trials, including the silence, seeming silence of God, that grows us endurance through them. We have to trust God's promises more than our perception. Ultimately, we have to trust God more than we trust ourselves. And this is exactly what we see this Canaanite woman doing. Uh, Just working through our passage, uh, the next few verses, first... You just got to, I mean, I'm sure you felt this as I was reading it. You were like, this is kind of an an uncomfortable passage. And especially imagine trying to read this with an unbeliever and trying to explain it to them. It's a very uncomfortable passage. And and you may have been thinking like, well, I can't wait for the pastor to explain it to me about why it's not as uncomfortable as it it feels. Um, It is that uncomfortable. There's no, and so let's work through it. First, verse 24, Jesus finally answers her. But with what appears to be a kind of cold theological answer, he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Does that seem indifferent to you? So I think this is what Jesus is saying here. Listen, my mission is to the Jews, not the Gentiles. In other words, he's saying to the woman, listen, you have have no right to make a demand of me. I didn't come for for your kind of... I think the operative word you could write down is he's, he's teaching her, you're unworthy. You're unworthy. But then how does she respond? 
She responds with faith that perseveres. Verse 25. But she came and she knelt down before him saying, Lord, help me. Here is a faith that just would not give up. It persevered. And then if what Jesus said in verse 24 seemed indifferent, what he says in verse 26 just seems plain ugly. He says to her, it is not right to take children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So she cries for help, and Jesus calls her a dog. It's unsettling, right? Like, what is he doing here? This is not like... We get Jesus being sharp with the Pharisees. That makes sense. Bunch of religious hypocrites. Yeah, blow them out of the water. Who cares? But calling this desperate, suffering mother a dog? Like, what's up with that, Jesus? It's unsettling, but but maybe not in the way that we think. He's told her that she has no right to his saving power, that she's not the least sheep of Israel. She's unworthy. Now he's teaching her that she's unclean. That's the key word to write down. Unworthy, now unclean. In those days, dogs were scavengers. Jews considered them to be unclean. And so what Jesus is essentially doing here is he is evangelizing her. He's saying, listen, you may have heard about me, but I don't know if you know the truth. So I've got to give you the truth here. You're unworthy, and you are a vile sinner. This is a test of her faith. It's a purification of her faith. And actually, the only thing more shocking in this this whole passage, more shocking than Jesus' statement here, is her reply to him. It's her reply to him. Because she says in verse 27, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. That is a shocking statement of faith. It's shocking for at least three reasons that I can I can see. One, it's shocking because she gets it. She gets it. She agrees with Jesus. She says, yes, Lord. I like how the King James puts it better. Truth, Lord. Truth, Lord. I am a sinner. I am unworthy. I am unclean. I have no rights here. Truth, Lord. I am a sinner. So she gets it and she confesses it. That's the mark of true faith right there, a confession of unworthiness. But the second thing that's so amazing about this statement is she expresses her faith by changing the imagery that Jesus uses. From a scavenger dog stealing the kid's food to a household pet catching crumbs from the master's table. It's an incredible change of imagery. She says, yes, Lord, true Lord. But if a generous master lets his little dog catch the crumbs from his table, Lord, won't you let me catch some crumbs from your table? He said, I'm not asking to be your child. I'm not asking to steal their food. I'm not even asking for a seat at the table, Lord. I just want you to be my master, my Lord. For I know the kind of master you are. And friends, when your faith is struggling and you don't know what the Lord is doing in your life, that's what you've got to look at. I know what kind of master you are. 
It's that quote I love so much from Spurgeon that I say all the time. When you cannot trace his hand, you must learn to trust his heart. We have to look at Jesus and say, okay, what kind of God is this? He's the one who gives up his own son for me. He's the one who dies for me when I'm yet his enemy. I don't know what he's doing in my life right now, but I know the kind of master he is. He's good. He's loving. He's caring. He's trustworthy. And then third and finally, her statement is so incredibly shocking Because it would appear, this is the only record we have, if I can say this reverently, this is the only record we have of someone out-arguing Jesus. I mean, she doesn't really, because I think he gets her right where where he wants her. But, But, she makes her point, and he concedes it. Saying, oh woman, Great is your faith. Great is your faith. Friends, this is great faith. It's mega faith. It's faith that perseveres over every obstacle. And you see, this is the way, it's a lesson for us about how we argue with God when we are persevering through a trial. Again, I say argue with God in a a reverent way. The Puritans would call it holy argumentation. It's the example this woman sets for us, and Jesus commends it. Great faith takes the word of God and argues it back to him. Yes, Lord, I am poor, but wert thou not made poor that I might be made rich? Truth, Lord, I am a foolish person. I don't get it, God. But have you not said you give wisdom liberally to all who who ask? Yes, Lord, I am weak. I'm so incredibly weak. I'm weak of faith, God, but is not your grace sufficient for me? Truth, Lord, I am tempted. I'm so tempted here. I'm about to fall. Oh, God, yes, truth, Lord. This sin tempts me, but you, are you not faithful to provide a way of escape that I might be able to do this? Yes, Lord, I am so anxious. God, I feel I'm so anxious right now. But are you not my perfect peace? This is how faith overcomes. It takes the promises of God and it prays them back to Him. It humbly, but reverently and boldly takes God's word. I love how William Gurnell, the Puritan once said it. He said, God is tender of His own handwriting. Show it to Him. I love that. God is tender of His own handwriting. Show it to Him. God, you said this. You said this, God. That's all I'm clinging to. You said this. This doesn't mean that the Lord will fulfill His promises the way that we think that He should. Usually He does not. But He will fulfill them. And when He fulfills them, it will be better than how you thought that He should because He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. We often think when we take one of the promises of God, God, here's the promise, and this is what you should do with it. Here's the promise, and this is exactly how you should fulfill it. And the Lord would remind us, Yea, but my thoughts are not higher than your thoughts, and are my, my ways, are they not higher than your ways? For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And yet, this is Isaiah 55, and yet my word will accomplish what I sent for it to accomplish. 
And so we pray his word back to him. But we let God be God. We trust him. Which brings us to our third and final point today. Our third and final point. I really want you to to see this and enjoy this. Revel in this as you leave today. Faith that delights. Faith that delights. There's just so much here at the end of this passage where we see Jesus heal this woman's daughter. He, he does give her the desires of her heart. And he goes on and he, he blesses these great crowds and they marvel at him. And it just shows us God's desire to do good, God's desire to bless us here. But there's just no doubt. The whole strength of this passage that, that really animates this passage is Jesus' exclamation, Oh, woman, great is your faith. And I want you to see in that the satisfaction, the delight that Jesus has in her faith. It delights him. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Have you ever thought about how much God delights in faith? It is very precious to him. In God's kingdom, faith is the most valuable commodity. It's so precious to him because... Why is it so precious to him, Jace? Well, because faith reflects his trustworthiness. Faith reflects God's own trustworthiness. and, And it showcases our reliance on him and his power and his goodness and his faithfulness. So God esteems faith because ultimately faith esteems God. God esteems faith because ultimately it esteems Him. That's why He delights in faith. And and what is it that every Christian longs to hear when we reach the heaven? That great saying of God, right? Well done, good and faithful servant. Hear the delight. Well done. Great job. Good, you did it. Well done. God is delighted at our being good and faithful servants. God delights in faith. Now I want to show you this over in 1 Peter for just a minute because I think it might help you. I think I think what happens with this woman here in Matthew 15 kind of in narrative form is really just spelled out for us in 1 Peter 1 verses 6 through 7. So I want to spend just a couple minutes looking at this. I have it on the overhead for you. Peter writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right, what I want you to see here is Faith is more precious than gold. Uh, Gold is probably the most precious thing that Peter could think of. And so he grabs it here and he says, listen, gold is the most precious thing on earth and faith is more precious still. Faith is more precious still. Your faith is more precious than that. Faith is, in fact, the most precious thing on earth. And it is so precious, God is willing to put it through fire. Just like gold can be refined through fire purified through fire by having its dross drawn up and removed, so too can your faith be made more precious, more delightful to God 
more valuable when it is purified through the fire of various trials. Now what this means is that there is always a divine design in all your distresses. There is always a divine design in all of your distresses. God in his sovereignty is probably doing a thousand different things and we can't name all of them. And part of your suffering is under the the curse of this broken world and and because of other people's sin and, and there are passages and sermons about that. But one thing we know that he is doing is God is refining your faith. And that's exactly what our Lord is doing with this woman in this text, I think. I think he's, he's not answering her, and then he's telling her she's unworthy, and then he's telling her that she's unclean, because ultimately I believe he's purifying the faith that came. And he's strengthening it, and he's increasing it. God loves our faith. And this is the crazy thing to get if you never thought about any of this before. Right there in verse 7, chapter, or 1 Peter 1, verse 7 I think when he says it will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, I think he's saying God's going to glorify and praise and honor you. He's going to commend you just like he did this woman in Matthew 15. Oh, woman, great is your faith. And just like he does in Matthew 25 when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And just like in 1 Corinthians 4, 5 when he says each will receive his commendation from the Lord. Because faith delights God, and God delights in commending it. So here's where I want us to land today. I'm hoping that you are seeing your faith is of more value than of anything else on this earth. Gold is the best, and your faith is more precious still. And the way God thinks about this is that it's so valuable, He's willing to put it through fire, various trials, which means... When we are angry under a trial, or when we are complaining and murmuring under a trial, or when we begin to lose hope under a trial, at least one thing that is revealing is that we do not value faith as God values it. That we do not value faith as God values it. Instead, We want what? What do you want? Comfort? Ease? Security? Health? For yourself, for your children, for your loved ones? Because ultimately, you value that more than faith. We don't value what God values. And since God esteems faith because faith esteems Him... The hard truth is that means we ultimately don't value God and Him being glorified through that trial. Now I realize I'm speaking this into probably some very hard situations in this room. Many of them I don't know. Some of them I know about. Many of them I don't know about. You may be here and, and, and your marriage may be on the rocks. Uh, someone you love may be struggling with sickness. Uh, Maybe you're here wrestling against same-sex attractions. Uh, Maybe one of your kids is is rebelling against God. 
Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe someone in this church has done something to offend you. Uh, I confess to the first service last week, uh, lovingly, someone came up to me in love. Uh, in the week, they came up to me and let me know that uh, when I, I was trying to exhort us not to judge people who educate their kids differently, that I spoke about public school in a way where I might have made people who send their kids to public school feel like they were different than many people here. And I said, well, that's not, I, I actually meant to do the opposite. And they just very lovely were like, you know, yeah, but you didn't. <laughs> and so if I did that to you, if I made you feel like the odd duck out, I am sincerely sorry. That was definitely not my intent. And so I apologize. But that is going to happen in the life of a church. Your pastors are going to say things that offend you. We may hold things differently than you do, and it may be hard for you. Someone else in this church is certainly going to offend you. And it's easy to get looking at like the grass is greener somewhere else. Maybe we can leave this church and find people who are like us, agree with us, think we're great. But do you see the test of faith in it? My larger point here is God could have prevented any of these things from happening in your life, whatever it is. But instead, he allowed them that they might purify your faith. Peter says, if necessary, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that your faith may be tested, that it may be purified. God in his wisdom, his sovereign wisdom, has deemed it necessary for you. When gold is melted in fire, its impurities float to the top and can be removed And this is what you're experiencing under the trial that God has you in. You're finding those impurities of of temptations to murmur, temptations to complain, temptations to doubt, uh, tendencies to, to, to trust in money or position or health or popularity more than God. All that is impurities. All that is dirt mingled in with the gold of your faith. And God in His kindness is bringing them up to the top so that he might draw them away, because impurities hinder our fullest experience of the goodness and the greatness of God. The purer our faith, the more of God we see and take in. So God designs to refine our faith with the fires of trial and distress. His aim is that our faith is more pure and more genuine, so that our experience of his goodness and his greatness might be more pure and more genuine. And so, in conclusion, I I just want to, you know, we sing that song on that day. Let me draw your attention to that day here. On that day, when Christ returns, as Peter says, at the revelation of Jesus Christ, we know at least two things are going to happen. Two things are going to happen. First, our purified faith is going to result 
in praise and glory and honor to us. God is going to commend our faith. He's going to reward us. He's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. He's going to say, oh, what great faith. But the faith he esteems is faith that he has given. And the faith he esteems is the faith that he has purified. And so the second thing and the greater thing that will happen is his glory will be magnificently reflected in our faith. And his praise in our being praised and his esteem in our being esteemed. And the more pure and refined the gold of our faith is, the more clearly his beauty and his worth will be reflected for all to see. And so we should long for a purified and a great faith if we want to glorify God. But that means we have to embrace trial and hardship as they come. But then on that final day, we will finally see that the design of God in our distress has been the extraordinary joy we get of sharing in the very glory and praise and honor of God Himself. So, brothers and sisters, aim to live lives of great faith. Persevering faith. Clinging to God's Word faith. All for the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Well, God in heaven, thank you for these beautiful saints, Lord, that are here today, and the young people, and the joy, and the testimonies, and testimonies of your work in our midst, God. You are faithful, and we are so grateful, Lord. God, we pray that you would meet us through this word that we've just heard preached, God. This is a great word, and and Lord, we want to be called up from it to have great faith. Lord, if we're honest, this woman here, uh, this Canaanite woman, she, she puts many of us to shame. She only heard rumors of you, and she had great faith. And many of us have sat under un, unknown, <laughs> countless sermons, Bible studies, books we've read. And still our faith seems small and immature and struggling at times, weak. But God, I believe you gave us this word because you want to call us to more. You want us to see it's possible. You want us to know that you are at work in our lives to purify and strengthen our faith. And so instead of running away from trials like a dog with a you know, it's a tail tacked between its, 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 its legs, Lord, I pray you'd help us to just say, true, Lord, yet help me grow in grace. Help me grow in faith. God, I pray, grow our faith. Help us when we are struggling with unbelief, Lord, that we might glorify you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, let me invite you to stand now.